1: Hello there, welcome to the show. As always, I want to extend a, uh, a laurel and a hearty handshake. Sorry. Uh, can we even quote or even allude to, uh, you know, blazing saddles anymore? I, I worry, that as politically incorrect as that show is, I, I think we may be seeing a day where, you know, it's not just uh, you, you may be facing more than just a fine for invoking, you know, inappropriate humor. Nonetheless, welcome to the show for people who are joining us for the first time. Yes, this is a place where I encourage my listeners to revel in wrongthink. that was meant to be a lot more tongue in cheek just a few months ago. Now there's, I don't know, there's kind of a, there's a ring of truth to it that uh, feels a little heavier than it did once upon a time. If you get my drift, I think a lot of people are looking for truth. If you're one of those people who is, is looking for at least a reliable source, somebody who will, will talk to you straight about things and not shy away from even things that are unpleasant, but, uh, but will do so without just trying to, to get you mad and get you riled up and pointed at somebody else. Say it's their fault, you know. And, and essentially, I, I'm not here. Oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I'm not here to incite anything other than thinking for yourself. Unfortunately, that is, you know, considered super inflammatory language. But I'm glad you're part of our audience. We have a lot of good stuff t- to share in this hour. I want to mention Altabank Mortgage. That's my friend, John Staples. Also, uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. That's my friend, Steve Burgess two wonderful sponsors Uh, look I hope that you need their product or at least I hope you remember their name Alta Bank and Landmark Risk Management Insurance when you need what they are offering but at the very least if you're finding value in this show take a minute and drop them an email call them on the phone if you see them in person they live in southern Utah walking around say say hi to them tell them thank you for sponsoring this program so I'm i I'm feeling just a tiny bit melancholy today and, and I'm not one who really normally gets this way over anniversaries, but um, I'm looking at the calendar in disbelief and realizing it was five years ago that uh, Lavoie Finnicum was a very prominent figure in the news. Now, just by saying his name, I understand. There's a, there's a good chance I may be triggering some people. I may be angering some people. Even some of the people who may say, I really agree with you on a lot of stuff, Brian, but um, the name Lavoie Finnicum is one that is going to just set some people off. And the reason I'm thinking about him today is because it was five years ago today that he showed up unexpectedly at my radio studio in Cedar City. Now, look, there's a lot of things you can draw from that. Ah, there's he went to a rally. The reinforcements down there in the extremist hinterlands may have been. But uh, I just think on, you know, what kind of a standoff would allow one of its key people, one of its principles to hop in the car with another of its principals, Ryan Bundy, and drive from Burns, Oregon, all the way to southern Utah, and back. Never got stopped by a cop. The police knew where he was. But uh, the police never came to apprehend him. In fact, the police actually told the person who was calling the police to say, do you know LaVoy Finnegan's right here? Um, They told him there's nothing we can do. There's no arrest warrant. The reason I point this out is because there's a very different narrative out there, and that's probably where most people get their information of, well, who was Lavoy Finnegan? What did he stand for? Most people know him as this guy who was, you know, raging at the cops and, and got himself shot up in Oregon and, and you know, was telling them to shoot him. And they, they believe what to, what they believe the interpretation that has been attached to this by a lot of media sources. Oh, well, he was a dangerous terrorist. I heard someone say this a long time ago. I believe it to be true. And that is the person that was killed up there in Oregon was not Lavoie Finicum. It was a caricature of Lavoie Finicum that the media created and that the police justified using lethal force against. At the slightest possible pretext. But nobody really knew unless you had a chance to actually talk to him. So. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I just, there are a few things that I wish people knew about what happened at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge five years ago. Now, I have to remind you, at the time, I didn't know either. In fact, it was uh, just about a little over a year ago, I had a chance to attend a screening of a documentary called Lavoie, Dead Man Talking. This is produced by the Center for Self-Governance. It's a marvelous series. And it's a documentary which outlines the process by which Ammon Bundy and Ryan Bundy, along with Lavoy Finnicum and others, chose to occupy the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. Now, what, made, what makes this such a valuable source of information is that the film uses the actual words of the key players themselves. In other words, there's not a commentator telling you, and then he did this, and then he said that, you hear it from their own mouths, what they may have said. <laughs> It's it's their own words. And it's because a lot of this footage consists of YouTube videos recorded by Lavoie himself, as well as undercover auto, audio recordings made by law enforcement informants who infiltrated the public meetings leading up to the occupation. That was all government evidence. But it but it has a far more vindicating effect, as was witnessed by the fact that the jury acquitted those who survived to go to trial. Now, there's a lot you can learn from going to the source. If you have to rely on incomplete or sometimes distorted reporting from others. And I understand full well. Most of the media is, uh, is dialed into the idea that uh, the Bundys and Lavoie Finnegan, by extension, are nothing but bad news. And they've played that role very well. And, you know, the media has played that role very well. And, oh, you know, pearl clutching and, and just, you know, they're, they're so concerned while turning a blind eye to the injustice that was being done to the Hammond family. And this is one of the things that, uh, again, as I think of Lavoie today, if there was one thing I wish I I could help people understand, it's why he was up there in Oregon in the first place. Because this is a guy with a successful ranch, a beautiful family. Um, He had all this stuff going for him. The idea of going up there and making some suicidal last stand would not have been a wise decision. And anybody who spoke to the man for more than a moment would realize, this guy has principles, deep principles, on which he's willing to stand, and in which he's willing to risk everything. But that's not the side of, of Lavoy that a lot of people know. For instance, a lot of people don't understand, why exactly did Ammon Bundy and others go to Harney County in the first place? How did they become aware of the plight of the Hammond family? And for those who don't remember, Dwight and Steve Hammond were charged under a 1996 anti-terrorism law for a backburn fire they set that got away from them and ended up burning across about 100 or so acres of federally managed grassland. After paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines, they faced a mandatory five years in prison. That's because of that that anti-terrorist addition to the law. The judge who sentenced them refused to sentence them into the full term, saying that would shock the sense of justice to do so. And after serving a three-month and a one-year prison sentence, Dwight and Steve were released and they went home to resume their lives. But there were individuals within the U.S. Justice Department who were determined to get their pound of flesh. And so they agitated till they found a judge who would order the men back to prison in 2016 to serve out the full sentence. Now, 2016 is about two years after the Bundy family underwent their experience at the hands of BLM forces down there in 2014 in in Bunkerville. And Ammon Ammon Bundy saw that firsthand and close up. And when he saw what had happened to the Hammond family, he felt compelled to stand up for them. And this is you have to understand, he didn't just run up there gonna take over a refuge in order to 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 get this message out. The first thing he did was he met with community and county leaders and begged for them to interpose on behalf of the Hammonds. And his pleas fell on deaf ears. There was a rally held January 2nd in Burns, Oregon, to discuss the Hammonds. Ammon and others met at the at Old Castle restaurant to discuss making a more pointed stand on behalf of all those Harney County residents being abused by their local and federal government. And as the recording shows, that's when the decision was made to occupy the refuge and to take control of it through the legal doctrine of adverse possession. Now, when the rally was over, a few um, a few individuals, some of them armed, traveled to the refuge and finding no one there began occupying it. Now, there's more to this story. And when we get back from the break, I'm going to share that with you. And, and look, I'm not trying to convince you. You should have been up there, too. And you should absolutely, you know, be on the side of the Bundys or you should be on the side of LaVoy Finnicum. What I'm suggesting, though, is that if, if what you if all you know about them is what you have had reported to you by mass media, by mainstream media, I can promise you that what you know about them is incomplete. I may not change your mind, but I can fill in a few pieces of the puzzle and at least give you a more well-rounded picture of who Lavoie Finnicum was.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm commemorating the last time that I had a chance to interview Lavoie Finnicum. That was five years ago today. He showed up in Cedar City, surprised me, along with his wife, uh, Jeanette. Um, I was so surprised and so happy to see him and so relieved because I had heard about the, you know, the siege mentality that had been developing up in harney county and i'm not talking about the the siege mentality of oh, the, yeah, all the yell there are militia people showing up no i am talking about the fbi and and state law enforcement transforming the town of burns into a garrison barbed wire barricades armored vehicles heavily armed warrior cops everywhere serious serious stuff And so, you know, that's the impression people have. Well, yeah, it must have been really dangerous. You saw how the how the government had to respond. And yet the behavior out there at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge was peaceful. They were cleaning the place up. They were actually trying to take care of it and improve it. Now, look, again, you don't have to agree. Occupying it and trying to seize it via adverse possession, which it turns out is a real legal doctrine and has been successfully used before. I don't know. Maybe maybe it was tilting at windmills. But what motivated Ammon in the first place was the idea that there was a terrible injustice being done. And somebody at some level had to stand up and say enough. Local and county leaders wouldn't do it. And look, there's a part of me that gets that they're they're pretty dependent on federal dollars. They, they have a working relationship, you know, with the federal employees. And there'd be a lot because, you know, there's an area where the BLM has a very strong presence. So with them sitting on their hands, Ammon said it was uh, it was time that he was ready to to step up and make a hard stand. Now, that doesn't mean a violent stand. And if you understand that they, they did so without pointing guns at anybody. So you got to think about, you know, when when you hear, well, they were just heavily armed and that's what prompted, you know, this massive law enforcement response. No, no. The massive law enforcement response was entirely disproportional to what was actually going on at the refuge. People were freely coming and going, bringing supplies, talking with Lavoie, talking with Amon Bundy. And I'll grant you, you know, to me, one of the things that attests to... Um, the the purity of what they were trying to do in terms of their I don't think it was about self-aggrandizement you know if they were just wanting attention there are a lot less painful ways to bring attention to yourself and learning to navigate that uh, that maze of media because let's face it um, you don't get somewhere in media without being a little savvy and able to think on your feet and when you can put that with an agenda you know there are trick bag questions and just gotcha moments around every corner So if somebody's setting out to make you look bad and it's your first time ever doing something like this, um, you know, I'm willing to be generous enough to say, yeah, clearly they made some mistakes. But the underlying principle, why were they there? They were trying to stand up for people who were being brutalized. They weren't just going to shrug their shoulders and say, well, at least it isn't me. Where do you see that kind of concern for one another? I don't see that much of it these days. But I think it's a good thing. Now, by doing this, this occupation, of course, that prompted disagreement and even outrage. And this was, by the way, among some residents who were supportive of the Hammonds. They were worried. They were were afraid this is going to this is going to bring the government down on us. And it did. Maybe not directly like, oh, there were reprisals and, you know, they ran off their livestock and burned their crops. Not quite like that, but they were very worried That it would it would bring some they would lose their own grazing licenses and so forth. And this is why Ammon and others were sternly warned by Hammond County officials. You know, you know, we want you to get out. In fact, here's the thing. Ammon and Lavoie and the others made it very clear. If you want to learn what we're standing for here, please come out and and we'll talk to you and we'll show you what we're trying to do. And the people who did. Who wanted to learn for themselves, what's it all about? were smart by going to the source. But even they, and this includes uh, some state legislators from Idaho and Washington states, they came to to Harney County, they wanted to learn about the occupation for themselves, and what do you suppose Judge Steve Grasty, who was kind of, he's like the boss hog of, of Harney County, told them? He said... They, they asked these troopers on... scene. Well, actually, Judge Harney told them, don't go out there and see these guys. Ammon is a dangerous criminal individual. Now, when they called him a criminal, these lawmakers turned to the Oregon State troopers who were there on scene. And they said, what state laws have been broken? And right there in the video, right there in the recording, which shows in, the, in this video, Lavoie, dead man talking, you hear the answer is none. And then they asked FBI agents on the scene, what federal laws have been broken? And you know what the answer was for that? Well, the U.S. Attorney's Office is looking into that. Isn't it strange that law enforcers could not articulate a single law having been broken when that's exactly what their job entails? Okay, you guys are here, laws being broken, what's going on? Where's, which law? They had no answer. Now, the point here isn't that, therefore, everybody should agree Ammon and the others were correct in occupying the refuge. I'm just trying to point out the official version of what happened there lacks context, needed context. And that lack of context, combined with weaponized labels of terrorist, extremist, and dangerous, allowed a massive injustice to go unquestioned for far too long. And nowhere is that injustice felt more deeply than in the unnecessary escalation of force by the authorities that led them to killing Lavoie Finnegan four years ago. The lies and distortions by people in authority can be recognized as such, thanks in part to this amazing documentary, Lavoie Dead Man Talking. Now, if the official narrative can be demolished by truth, it deserves to be. Which kind of brings me to where we are today. Would you agree that there is an official narrative that uh, is we're being is that they're pointing to it right now and saying this or maybe they're handing us a three by five index card, as Tom Woods would suggest. On that index card, these are the things that you are able to discuss. You may legitimately discuss any of these topics. Well, what if I wanted to say no, 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 you can discuss what's on the card. Anything else? That is off limits. That's because we have an official narrative that that has to be held to. Sadly, we are reaching a point where there is an official narrative. And and the crazy thing about it is it's not so much the government censors that are stepping forth to uh, to enforce this. As the corporate censors acting on behalf of government, I mean, there's a you can get into a lot of different uh, there's a lot of different rabbit holes you could eventually find yourself pondering do i jump or not but uh, the connection between big business and big government look it's real they both work in ways that benefit each other we've never seen anything though, like we saw before just a few days ago where that relationship was used to deplatform and to cut off the flow of information For a pretty sizable chunk of people. I mean, you know, I'm not saying everybody who voted for uh, Donald Trump, you know, necessarily was on social media. Probably not, given, you know, some of the ages. But even if we can just cut it down, conservatively estimate, oh, yeah, estimate that there were, you know, millions of people who suddenly found themselves unplatformed or suspended. It's kind of curious. Especially since uh, the the one common thing that basically all of those who found themselves silenced found was uh, they shared the common thing that they all question the official narrative at some level. Whether it's, you know, being advocates for freedom, educational choice. I don't know. You know, basically, if you're not in complete compliance and complete agreement, you are a threat. Which brings us to what we're going to talk about next. Armed protest rallies this weekend. Really? All right. We'll talk about that coming up.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I am probably going to step on some toes. I'm not doing this because I don't like you or I want to make you angry, but if you feel your toes being stepped on, I got to say something here that, uh, that I know some are going to take to be unpopular, but, but I feel like I need to say it. I've heard the, I've heard the different uh, stories out there circulating about, oh, there's going to be 50 armed protests taking place at all the state capitals, and you know this is, this is going to be a big show of armed force you know, to the government of who's really in charge. And in fact, uh, a friend of mine who's in law enforcement said, yeah, you know, I'm getting called up to provide some security. And um, and he wondered about it. he goes, what's the What's the Boogaloo boys? I've never heard of that before. And I I have to laugh on the one hand, because I've heard the term go around for a while, too. Um, look, I was I was fortunate enough to have grown up, you know, been a teenager and a young man in the uh, in the 80s. I remember when breakdancing came along and when breakin. Came out. I believe. I think that was 1984, the year I graduated high school. You know, as crazy as it may sound, break dancing was a thing. No, I wasn't into it, but I knew folks who were, and it was it was a thing. So when when something as uh, kitschy as uh, as uh, break was, and it, it didn't last for long. It may have outlasted disco by a little bit, but I mean, it, it just it never really caught on outside certain circles. But when when the Sequel to Breakin', Breakin' 2, The Electric Boogaloo came out. I mean, the the joke, anything after that, anything that's sure to be a whole lot of fun, um, you know, it's The Electric Boogaloo. And so when people have been referring to the prospect of, hey, we seem to be headed for division, it looks like we are a society that is fracturing and balkanizing, and by balkanizing, they mean falling apart in such a way that we could conceivably lose civility and find ourselves in some kind of a civil war. Whether it be a hot or a cold civil war, neither one of them sounds like the place where we want to find ourselves. And my friend, according to the information that had been given to his law enforcement uh, operation, or his organization rather, was uh, just asking, is it true what they say about these guys? They don't believe in any political philosophy. They're anti-government. They're, they want to see civil war start. Maybe they're not going to start it, but they want to see it start. They want to see societal collapse. Now, look, I know some people out there, you know, people out there. The Burt Gummers of society who are really hardcore preppers and and they probably, you know, Talked about this and prepared for this. They've probably done it quietly, which is to their credit for most of them. But we know people who are very prepared, minded the, the prospect that, oh, our society could fall apart or we could find ourselves in a civil war. I know there are those who think such talk is just beyond the pale. How could you even say such a thing? But if you're going to face reality, the truth is, yep, we're on a trajectory that uh, looks a lot like other societies have seen when they were really coming apart at the seams. That's an unpleasant truth. I wish it weren't so, but let's, let's face it for what it is. But here's the thing that gets me. Wh- whoever's feeding this information, it's probably the Southern Poverty Law Center, maybe the ADL. I don't know. Whoever, th- there's, there's a lot of self-appointed hate group monitors. And those hate group monitors just happen to love, you know, as, as many government programs as they can find. They have a very symbiotic relationship with government. And essentially what they exist to do is to root out people who are not on board with everything that government is doing. Which means sometimes they're, they are guilty of manufacturing hate where there is none, or at least accusing people of hate where there is none. People who are preppers, I think, are wonderful. What they're preparing for, I don't know. It's it, That's up to each. They're each going to have their own individual understanding. But when people try to categorically, you know, say that that's, that's proof that they just they want to see society decline. No, they don't. Nobody in their right mind wants to see society decline. But if you look around the world, you'll notice that the, the, the abundance and all the good stuff that we have enjoyed, that we took for granted till about a little less than a year ago, that's not the norm. That is not the natural state that most of mankind finds itself in at any given moment. I mean, there are a lot of people that are just eking out an existence, happy to get something in their belly. And I'm not trying to make you feel sad like, so send a donation in to support the kids in Africa. I'm just saying the reality is. There's a lot of the world that works a lot harder for the dinner on their table than you and I do. And the stuff that we take for granted, the stuff that has made us spoiled. (sighs) I don't know. It hasn't made us better people in, in many ways. But having said this, if you are thinking about going to one of these uh, these rallies, I don't know. I haven't seen any group that I would consider reputable. And I mean, people who have skin in the game, who um, th- who have a habit of peaceably protesting and making their voices heard through um, citizen activism, you know, through being a, a citizen lobbyist to their legislators. I haven't seen anybody among those those circles of people put out a call saying yes let's all get our guns and meet up at the state capitol. and you may hear some people in the next few days trying to tell you well you know you need to do this if you're not doing this you're not a real patriot when you know what would it take i don't know you know call me jaded but this just looks a little too convenient for 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 a political class that is so on hair trigger about everything after, you know, their temple of democracy was desecrated last week. So they say. They are spoiling for a chance to really clamp down. I mean, they're already doing things that I I never thought you would see them do, and they're doing it fast. They're scared. But I can promise you the the vast majority of people out there who would, in fact, stand up and fight for their rights. They're not the people you need to fear. Spoke to someone the other day who was just going, I can I couldn't believe it. I'm watching the uh, Trump rally at the Capitol last week. And her comment was these people look like me. So if you are a diehard lover of freedom, you better believe it. You are you're marked. You're a problem child. Now, I mean, that's that can be a good thing or a bad thing. It's good to be known by your principles, right? Sometimes it's not so good when when someone is gunning for you. And right now, about half of society is being trained to view you as a violent, you know, ticking time bomb, just looking for an excuse to go off. And I'm just going to throw this out there, even though, again, I know there are people who are like, but, you know, we should go. We should show that we're willing to exercise our, our freedoms, willing to exercise our right to keep and bear arms. I promise you this. If you are foolish enough to show up to one of these protests. You will find the other side in attendance. And they're spoiling for a fight. They're just looking for someone who's mad enough and dumb enough to engage them. Don't be the person who takes that bait. Don't do it. You know, the, the boogaloo, it's a humorous way of looking at, you know, Civil War II, the electric boogaloo. And so that's, that's where that comes from. But the bottom line is this. There are people who have seen what's coming, or at least have recognized the signs that we're, we're headed towards some potentially choppy waters. And there are people who have prepared as if they might have to someday defend themselves and their loved ones, and maybe their communities. Those are not the people who were tearing down the barricades and forcing their way into the Capitol last week. They're more the people who were still standing there listening to Trump talk uh, while the, the hijinks started. I know it sounds conspiratorial, but opportunity knocks when people are in a very, very high state of tension. And, you know, things that... Uh, that maybe would have been would would have seemed smaller in retrospect can quickly get out of control. You know, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand. Um, OK, the attack on Pearl Harbor. but that was pretty big. You're not going to ignore something like that. But little things can be blown out of proportion into big things. And I think that to people who go to these uh, these armed rallies, whoever it is, nobody's really even saying who's setting it up, which makes you wonder if this isn't, you know, your local uh, uh, government informant or, or provocateur just fishing. Hey, anybody, anybody want to go do something illegal? I know a guy who knows a guy. OK, <laughs> let me know. It's astounding, you know, in sitting through uh, the, the Bundy's trial in, in Vegas, the, n- the number of informants that were present not just at Bundy Ranch. There was there was a number down there, but up in Oregon. Oh my goodness. It's like the, the majority of people who were there on that refuge, were there at the government's behest. Go in there and find out what you can. Where this uh, where this recording and you know anyway. Bottom line is this: there are wiser and smarter times. You know you've got to you've got to choose your battle, and it should be on it should be on the ground of your choosing. If you grab your gun, your tactical gear, and you go out and you go flexing this weekend, you might prove your point. I think the risk outweighs any benefit. Save that stuff for when it's really needed.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. You know, um, it, was, it was a friend who pointed out uh, after the uh, unrest last week at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., to hear some people tell it, that was a crime against humanity that was second maybe only to the Holocaust in terms of the affront that it was to all of humanity. And, and I know politicians are pretty big one. you put them in front of a camera and they are definitely going to give you an Oscar worthy performance. Now, personally, I think that uh, I think they are deeply playing up the melodrama over what happened. When, when I look at, at the actual violence and damage compared to what happened elsewhere. I'll grant you this. That's a pretty unlikely scene. But, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to excuse uh, all the stuff that took place throughout the last half of 2020 as, uh, you know, well, that was just people trying to be heard only to, to pretend that. But what happened at the Capitol? Why, that was the worst thing ever. It was bad. We can say that it was bad but 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 they're lacking perspective. If, if you think that was something really that even can can be favorably compared, you know, with the Holocaust and how severe it is, how we must alter the laws of our land immediately, never again. That's the that's the comparison there. When they say never again. So if you need some perspective, I'm linking an article in the show notes, which you will find at the thebrianhaidshow.com. Show notes for January thirteenth, twenty twenty one. There's an excellent article there from James Bovard, and he condemns the violence in Washington last week he and he He condemns it as forcefully as anybody I have seen, but he also points out the congressional hypocrisy that followed and the violence that has flowed from the halls of Congress not just in American streets but abroad as well and it's it's it 's very worth your worth reading it 's not there to make you hate people in congress but It will definitely open your eyes to the outrage that they are feigning over someone profaning their temple compared to the actual damage being done to people by the policies that are being supported and perpetuated and maintained by those same individuals. I don't know. It's pretty striking. No one's trying to make the case one excuses the other. It's just... uh, Maybe some of that uh, that outrage is a little bit uh, hypocritical and uh, a whole lot misplaced. All right. One other thing that I wanted to share with you, this was uh, a really powerful column from Jeffrey A. Tucker. He actually wrote this uh, almost four years ago. Lyft drivers have a profound understanding of opportunity cost. Now, look, I don't hang around with a lot of economists, but I do hang around with enough people who are economically literate that occasionally I hear the term opportunity cost come up. And if you would ask me, well, define what that means for me, I, I would stammer. I could probably eke out a, a reasonable definition, but I would, I would be stammering around for something that, that actually made sense. I'd have to give you an example, which is why I want to share this article from Jeff Tucker. He gives an example, and it's such a perfect illustration of how your time is expensive, so you have to use it in the best way you know how. And that's, that's, uh, that leads us into opportunity cost. Now, look, I've, I've never thought about uh, being a rideshare driver. I've had plenty of rideshares, though, and they, you know, most, I think most everybody I've talked to has been pretty pleasant. Never had a bad experience, though I understand it can happen. Jeff Tucker says his Lyft driver explained, I'm sitting at home binging Netflix when I suddenly think, hey, I could be making money right now. So she hops off the sofa to grab the next notification that comes in she's out driving yet again instead of feeling like a wastrel she's productive energetic awesome she loves her new life and he says this is how my lifted driver explained how her job has changed her outlook on the world outlook on the world she says now i understand how this works the cost of what she is doing now is what she could be otherwise doing knowing this has changed her life yep he says it's called opportunity cost, one of the truly ep- epic insights that economics brought the world. There is a cost to every action and even non-action because of the passage of time. And that cost is what you have given up in order to do what you are doing. Everything then becomes a trade-off. You're spending the amount of money you would otherwise be earning by driving when you're watching Netflix. Your binging isn't free. Your foregoing income, provided the opportunity is there, it's not different from writing a future spending money or writing a writing a spending future money. He says these costs are subjective in the sense that you only know what you would rather be doing, or at least you think you know. You can test this, though. He says, for instance, you're reading this article right now, probably from, probably from your device. What else could you be doing? Reading a different article, hearing a podcast, talking to a friend, working. He says, your next best alternative is the cost of reading my article. That says to you as a reader, your time is expensive, so you better use it the way you know how. He says, that says to me as a writer, I better make this article valuable to you. Jeffrey Tucker says, it all seems obvious once you understand it. If you don't understand it, you can go your whole life and not see it, because you don't see what's real. There are many obstacles to seeing this truth. One of the blinders is a work schedule that is regimented. Nine to five off on a Saturday and Sunday, two weeks vacation, if you live this way, he says you become accustomed to thinking that you're just following the rules. An overly scripted life can cause you to miss the point entirely. But he says when you get a job with a ride-sharing service, the problem of opportunity costs becomes prescient. Sleep in on Saturday? You could be making money. Or this extra sleep is costly. Drink an extra cocktail? that will take another three hours to sober up, during which time you'll lose money that you could earn by driving. So he says it would make sense that people who provide these ride sharing services probably become overall better people, less lazy, less lazy, rather less self-indulgent, less inclined towards substance abuse, more and more eschewing the couch potato life, more focused on the reality of their lives. Nine to five, on the other hand, might tempt a person to believe I just have to do what I'm told to do. There are no costs to partying hard all night and sleeping in all with a hangover all day. What does it matter? You don't have to be at work until Monday, but just because the costs aren't monetary doesn't mean they don't exist. Now, listen to some of these suggestions. You want to kick a drinking habit? Get a job that pays you to be sober. Have a problem sleeping in and watching too much TV? A job will fix that in a jiffy. Now, he says again, nothing about the job changes the reality of life. It just puts a clear price tag on opportunity cost that makes it extremely obvious, pressing and relevant to your life decisions. So why does it work? Jeffrey Tucker says when reporters talk about ride sharing, they frequently talk about how the software slyly goads people into working longer hours, making pickups that strain physical demands, foregoing friends and family to make money. But he says the truth is that it's not the software doing this. It's the driver's realization that when they're not driving, they are giving up income. Drivers laugh at themselves at how intense they become about all of this. That's not the fault of the company. That's a choice that drivers themselves face. And he says it's, it's extremely tactile because drivers are following apps. While working, they have only a few seconds to snag a ride request before another driver does. It becomes a game. And this habit continues after you give yourself time off because basically all drivers are essentially self-employed. So you're finishing up the dishes. You're thinking about settling in for Game of Thrones. You habitually check your app. A ride request comes in just two tenths of a mile away now you have to think fast tap tap you snag it and you run out the door he says the driver i talked to laughed at herself for this behavior actually she loves it she feels valuable and productive she's making money so opportunity cost is everywhere from the way the job is set up in this case opportunity costs are obvious there's a beauty in this it reveals an underlying reality that we are otherwise inclined to deny Everything has a cost. Every action has a cost. Every choice has a cost. Nothing in this world is free. Every choice you make is foregoing some other choice you've declined. And that's true whether you drive for Uber or Lyft. It's just that this job makes it especially real. Opportunity costs are always with us. Every second of every day. And he says, now having finished my article, what have I given up to write it? Nothing as important as writing this piece. I made the right choice. Now, I realized, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a break from some of the political commentary and, and uh, some of the current events to share something on economics. I mean, you know, for, for some people, I'm sure you'd rather I was reading insurance actuarial tables to you because that's, that's going to be so unengaging. But isn't it beautiful how economics integrates with just everyday normal life? It's like it's uh, it's like it's a study somehow of how we go about making our decisions and our interactions with each other. Hazlitt's. Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. If it's not on your bookshelf, you should probably get your hands on a copy. I'm not saying it's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise but it will definitely help you see patterns like Jeffrey Tucker noted in uh, how Uber drivers and Lyft drivers perfectly illustrate what opportunity cost looks like. And now I'm recognizing a few opportunity costs in my own life.